Hey, what's going on, guys? Henry at Bro History. Thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, t- we will be speaking about, or I will be speaking about Syria. Uh, Dandy's not here. He's uh, he's sick. Um, he has his period. So he won't be joining us today, unfortunately. But um, I really wanted to get an episode out about Syria just because uh, there's been a lot of new updates as far as uh, just announcements from the White House. So I want to go over those. And um, first, before we get into that, I just want to give a, 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 a thanks to everyone who's been reaching out to me on Facebook and suggesting guests. Because I want to know who you guys want to hear on the show. Um, I got a really good suggestion, Prof- uh, Professor CJ from Dangerous History. And I actually have heard of Dangerous History before. And uh, I, I've never listened to the podcast, but I heard of, I've heard of Dangerous History. And I was looking through his stuff, and I was like, wow, this guy seems um, kind of similar to me as far as the content that he's putting out. So I'm going to reach out to him and uh, you know try to do some sort of collaboration uh, because I think it would be really good. Um, I, I think that we probably do have crossover in our, our audience, so I think it should be I think it should be a you know a pretty a pretty good show and, and productive for both of us. But um, all right, I'm going to get into the to the episode. So there's been a lot of news about Syria over the past couple of weeks, or let me rephrase that: there hasn't been a lot of news about Syria over the past couple of weeks. So I haven't been talking about it. And of course, there's day-to-day things on the ground that are happening. But I'm not going to do a podcast just because there's an airstrike or something. Um, that being said, there has been updates. And, and most importantly, Trump has declared victory over ISIS. Um, he has done this multiple times. Uh, take note. And uh, there has been many, many contradicting statements. So... I'm going to just talk about what's going on right now. Hopefully, this clears things up regarding the claim that Trump made that ISIS is defeated and whether that is true or, or not true or whatever. And um, something something else happened recently, and, and I'm not sure if people listening have heard about this or not, but the U.S. has been accused of using white phosphorus over a village in eastern Syria, Syria, killing a couple of civilians. And they were mainly women and children. In Russia, media has reported that, so maybe you're going to take that with a grain of salt. I mean, I saw the, I saw the headline on Sputnik and, and, and also on Press TV, which is the Iranian news outlet. Um, but Russia, Russian media has reported that U.S. coalition forces, so the SDF, a.k.a. the Kurds, fired white phosphorus into a ISIS-held village in eastern Syria. Uh, the U.S. has denied this, FYI. However, I do think this report holds merit. And the reason why I say that is because I watched the video. And it sure as hell looked like white phosphorus. Um, I have a sent it to an expert. I know Danny would probably be able to give like the true or false on this, but from what I saw, it really does look like they use white phosphorus. And um, another thing is is the U.S. has been using white phosphorus like you know since Vietnam, or or, or perhaps even 
prior to that. But they use, the U.S. has used white phosphorus a couple times um, throughout pretty much all their wars in the Middle East. So I don't find it really, I, I don't find it to be a surprise that, that, that they used it. And if they did use white phosphorus, that's pretty damn hypocritical. Like the major talking point for the Assad must go camp has always been Assad used chemical weapons on his own people. He's a monster. We need to stop him. Assad must go. Meanwhile, we're, we're doing the same things. Because white phosphorus is a clear cut example of a chemical weapon. And it's probably worse than the things that Assad has been accused of using, like sarin gas. Um, like white phosphorus is a incendiary weapon. It, it sets objects on fire through chemical reaction. It, and it has two main purposes. It's used either offensively, so to light shit on fire, or as a smoke screen. And there's like all these rules and guidelines that restrict and allow the use of white phosphorus in certain cases. For example, it's allowed for illumination purposes. So smoke screens and, and, and things like that. Um, you know, anything that would help you move troops into a position. Um, you can use it on military targets, uh, but just like just military targets. Like we're talking about like a like a arms depot in the middle middle of the desert. But it, it's prohibited for use near civilians. So you can't just shoot white phosphorus over a village to move your soldiers into a shooting position or something like that. You know, even if there like there there are actual aggressive targets in that village, you can't just shoot white phosphor white phosphorus over it. And, and the reason why is because it's extremely extremely hazardous. It, it's basically this waxy mineral that ignites. And what happens is that it sticks on your skin and causes really bad burns. And we're talking second and third degree burns. And what makes it worse is that when your skin is burning, the phosphorus seeps into your organs and causes kidney damage, liver damage, heart failure. Like it's an absolutely brutal death. If you get, if you die by white phosphorus, it's fucking terrible. And like, even if you just inhale the smoke, because like white phosphorus, it just, it like shoots out a bunch of white smoke and stuff like that. That's why it's used as a smoke screen. If you breathe in that smoke, it causes your lungs to blister until you suffocate. So for that reason, there are multiple international laws that regulate white phosphorus use. And the reason why it's, it's, it's regulated is because it's indiscriminate. There's no precision-guided white phosphorus. It, it's like napalm. So um, it, it's, a, it's a bad weapon. It's, it's a bad weapon. It has its uses that may not be intended to be used aggressively, but, I mean, using white phosphorus, if it gets on you, if it gets on a civilian, if it gets on a kid, if it gets on a, a, a woman, it is just fucking awful. And it's like, you want to avoid that, especially when we've used chemical weapons as a pretext to have a hostile foreign policy towards somebody. It's just hypocritical at the end of the day. You know, if you're going to chastise one president or dictator or whatever you want to call Assad for using chemical weapons, then you need to show some consistency and not do the same thing because no one's going to take that seriously anymore. 
So, I mean, you can believe whatever you want as far as like the sources go. I'll post the video that I saw um, and you can judge for yourself if, if you know more about this thing and, and, and call me out if I'm wrong. Uh, I want to be wrong, believe me. So if you see this video and, and you think I'm wrong about this, please point it out because I'd rather be wrong about this. Um, you know, the main problem is that it killed civilians and specifically women and children. So if your goal is to wipe out ISIS and you kill women and children doing so, the laws of insurgent math means that you're going to make more terrorists. Like now the families of those people are more likely to become insurgents if they weren't already. That's, that's how insurgent math works. It's basically you kill somebody, and it's more specifically if an American or, or a Western force kills somebody, then that's just going to create, create overall more resistance within that country. It's like in that movie War Machine. Um, I mean, General McChrystal actually said this, I think, but the movie War Machine with Brad Pitt, where he's like, um, no, you, I've actually never seen the movie. I just know he says this, but he's like, um, you know, you kill four insurgents. How, and there's 10 insurgents. You kill four of them. How many do you have left? And then there, he's like 12 because that guy's brother and cousin, you know, now they're insurgents. So that's what this type of thing leads to. But I mean, I guess any death, like a random drone strike does the same thing. Okay, so there's been a lot of confusion on Syria over the past couple of weeks. Um, Trump recently said on March 1st that we took over 100% of the caliphate in Syria, and he told the Kurds that they would be able to announce the complete victory over ISIS. So obviously there's still pockets left, hence the white phosphorus attack, or alleged attack, but the caliphate is gone. They no longer exist. Um, ISIS, they're, they're just in villages in eastern Syria right now. And there's some in Idlib as well. But they're no longer a threat to take down any major population center like Raqqa or Mosul or, or any other city in Syria or Iraq. And um, what you're seeing right now is people who joined abroad from the west... They're trying to beg for forgiveness and go home. You saw there, there's a couple of cases right now. There was this, this uh, jihadi bride from America who tried to come home. There's one from Britain. Uh, this guy from the Netherlands is trying to get back. Um, their, citizen, their citizenship is being revoked. But all these people are trying to flee ISIS right now who, are, you know, who went there willingly. They volunteered for ISIS because they know that there is no more hope. Like, everything is done. They, they don't have anything left, and they're going to get killed by either the Syrian army or the Iraqi militias on the other side of the border. But I understand the confusion, because overall, there's been a lot of contradicting statements, um, especially since Trump announced that we would be leaving at the end of the year. So, for example, on February 22nd, so only a couple of weeks ago, uh, Trump announced that they would be keeping... 400 soldiers at the El Tanf base, which is uh, like which is right on the border of Syria, Jordan, and uh, and Iraq, in far in far southeastern Syria, and um, I mean there's a good reason they want to stay there. They want to stay there because they want to prevent Iran from forming a land bridge from Tehran through Baghdad through Syria and then onto Lebanon where they can uh, reach and, and supply Hezbollah. And the reason why they want to do this, it's mainly because of Israel. 
like Israel's kind of saying, hey, like, what are you doing? You can't leave right now. Um, Iran is empowered in Syria right now because that's what happened. Like after Iraq War Three or Iraq War Three, after Iraq War Two in 2003, um, that ended up actually empowering I- Iran and all these places because Iran became, you know, the you know they're the biggest army in the Middle East I mean, besides Israel, and uh, you know they came to help all these countries that were being, you know, taken over by this Wahhabi cancer, but. 400 soldiers is really nothing like we we are leaving Syria like 100% we are leaving Syria we're kind of just leaving some turds behind and um, I'll tell you basically what happened so apparently when Trump was in Iraq over Christmas he was in western Iraq and that's the location of uh, our operational headquarters uh, who for the guys who manage the war in Syria, uh, he met with some generals and asked, like, uh, he, he asked, how many ISIS are in eastern Syria? And the general was like, only a couple left in, uh, in the Euphrates Valley. And uh, Trump was like, all right, well, how long is it going to take you to, to finish killing them? And uh, the general who he was speaking to was like, uh, a couple of weeks. And Trump was like, okay. After that, everyone needs to leave. And the general was like, okay, you got a boss. But at the same time, when Trump made that announcement afterwards, you have our national security advisor going over to Israel and meeting with Netanyahu, and he basically starts adding conditions to the withdrawal. So he goes over to Israel. Everyone's seen that press conference where he's standing with Netanyahu, and John Bolton is like, oh, we are mad. We are not leaving until Iran and ISIS and Assad and empowering all this stuff, just speaking a bunch of mumbo-jumbo stuff to try to, I don't know if he was trying to save face for the administration or what, but he was contradicting everything that Trump was saying. And it was really weird. And Bolton really did look like a complete asshole when he was doing this. And what really made him look like an asshole is when the Pentagon replied, we don't take orders from John Bolton which is the ultimate slap in the face. I don't really think that many people inside the administration take John Bolton that seriously. Like, I think he's really there for show. I think he's just there to show that we do have crazies here. Because John Bolton, I wouldn't call him a neocon. He's more of like this new generation of of war hawks who or yeah he's kind of a neocon he's a new generation of neocons but he's not like the type of neocon that you saw like richard pearl and paul wolfowitz paul wolfowitz um and during iraq war uh iraq war two but if the commander-in-chief looks at you in the eyes and says you know kill these guys and get out i mean they're going to do it i mean that's how the chain of command works in the u.s military like, we don't live in a banana republic where, you know, the military or, or the generals run roughshod and do whatever they want. Like, Trump, the president, is the commander-in-chief. So if they give you a direct order, or if he gives you a direct order, then they're going to do it. Leaving Syria was one of Trump's campaign promises. Like, he even shit on Jeb Bush. For basically being a Bush and being related to George Bush, like something really funny that Trump did 
Um, I think this was one during the debate. Um, I'm not sure, but he said this. It was it was great. Um, so Jeb's Jeb's campaign slogan was like something like "It's Jeb, it's Jeb," which is just it makes him sound like just some hillbilly. Um, and then Trump was like, "Well, what's the matter? You don't want to use your last name? Why not? What's your last name again?" So he was basically chastising him for for being a bush and being scared to admit it because he knows how toxic, I guess, the bush legacy is to, uh, I guess, not only America, but the rest of the world. So uh, Trump's instincts were always to leave Syria and to get out of these crazy wars. However, you might be saying to yourself, um, well, why are the troop numbers increasing in Syria? Because the troop numbers have actually increased. Well, the reason why those numbers increased is because the guys that are coming to close down the bases are coming in to pack shit up. And you need to bring more soldiers into Syria to protect those guys who are deconstructing the bases. That's really it. It's funny because I read somewhere, I read um, an article in December. It it was right before Trump's announcement. It was in Politico. And... uh, the article was talking about these new bases that were being built. So now apparently they're going to have to stop construction and then uh, take everything down that they built. And these bases are supposed to be pretty big. So now, we, <clears throat> so now we need to bring in troops to, to you know, and engineers and all that to, to shut those down as well. So um, I guess another big question is like, what's the deal with ISIS right now? Um, so with ISIS being defeated. And I think I'm just going to give a quick crash course on why and how ISIS came to exist um, for, for anyone who, who doesn't, who's not really familiar with it. So ISIS is Al-Qaeda in Iraq. After George Bush invaded Iraq in 2003, um, you know, they went ahead and they fired the Republican Guard and stopped paying their salaries. So these trained professional soldiers end up being the leadership of the main insurgency that we fought. And this is because George Bush played identity politics in the Middle East. And he handed power in Iraq over to the Shiite at the expense of the Sunnis and the Kurds. Well, predictably, this blew up in their face. Because all these ex-government workers and military and police officers, they hated us because... We, f- we shifted the, the power dynamic in Iraq. So they became the main insurgency that was killing American soldiers, you know, throughout 2006 to, to 2008. I mean, that's how long that rebellion took place. It was, and it was brutal. It was absolutely brutal. And like you remember, like if you guys remember, um, you know, Al-Qaeda of Iraq, um, they blew up the... Uh, Al-Asghari Shrine, which is one of the holiest sites in, in Shiite Islam. Um, and then the Shiite responded with violence and, and all hell let loose. You know, Iraq had a civil war. You know, some people don't call it a civil war. Like they, they consider it like the the time of, uh, you know, sectarian violence. But it was a civil war. Let's just be frank. Uh, maybe politically it wasn't very convenient to call it a civil war. Um, while Bush was still in office because he didn't want to say that his actions immediately started the Civil War because this was in 2006, only three years after the invasion. Well, eventually we do this thing called the surge where George Bush deploys 30,000 more troops to Iraq to provide uh, security to the new Iraqi Shiite 
chauvinist government ran by Noriel Malaki, who was basically our puppet prime minister, or, or at least the guy that we pushed in to be their prime minister. And uh, what happened after that is that legendary general David Petraeus came to save the day with this, with this brand new strategy. And uh, this brilliant strategy was to ship pallets of money, money, mainly $20 bills, and have forklifts drive around the country and deliver these pallets of money to all the Sunni warlords in Iraq. And we tell them, hey, if you fight Al-Qaeda, here you, here you go. The money's yours. And they agree because they're thinking long term. They're thinking we want the influence uh, we can get because the Americans are going to be leaving soon. So we want to get all the political influence. We want to keep the people in our in our the places that we manage happy and all this because like we're going to actually have time to to really thrive. So they take this money and they uh, they, uh, they 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 join they join the American cause to fight Al Qaeda in Iraq. So this was the great Sunni awakening. And now it, it turns out you can awaken people by forklifting pallets of cash to their door. And they turn on Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and uh, Al-Qaeda, and they give them hell. Um, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, they, they had to withdraw. The problem is, is that they didn't just disappear. They crossed over to Syria. And before going to Syria, um, let me peel this back a bit. Weapons have been pumped into Iraq since the 1970s. And, uh, you know, we used to heavily arm them during the... Uh, Iran-Iraq war, um, you know, a lot of countries were, a lot of people were shipping monies into Iraq. I mean, Saddam was, a, 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 Iraq in its height was a military power. They had the largest military in the Middle East, or at least the best military in the Middle East. Um, but after, I mean, all, all these weapons, they created all these big, you know, weapons depots with guns and knives and grenades and, you know, RPGs and all this crazy shit. But when the government fell in 2003, there was no oversight on these weapons. There was no one guarding them. So Al-Qaeda in Iraq, they were just able to take them. So as they were leaving Iraq into Syria, they just picked up the weapons. They're like, okay, here, I guess I'll, I'll take this on uh, the new country that uh, I'll be living in. And uh, I mean, this goes further on, like uh, later on, Obama gave a non-lethal aid package, which included things like Toyota trucks where you can mount artillery on. Uh, basically, Toyota trucks were, are, are great for desert warfare uh, because you can easily, I mean, they're durable trucks and you can easily just put a, you know, a, uh, a artillery gun or a machine gun on. Uh, same thing with motorcycles as well. Like they're really good for desert warfare. Um, you know, I've heard guys and people in the military tell me that they're better than Humvees, these Toyota trucks, these, uh, these Toyota Hiluxes, I believe. So during the Syrian war, when all that started, they were basically like death, destruction. We can do that. And they end up rebranding themselves as ISIS or the Islamic state of Iraq and the Levant which would actually be ISIL. ISIL is the correct name for them. And 
they end up conquering all of eastern well not all of eastern syria but they, they conquer huge chunks of eastern syria and after that they roll back into iraq and you know they seize western iraq they seize mosul um you know everyone's heard that story about it was like 600 troop uh, isis troops or militiamen or whatever you want to call them um they uh conquered mosul which was being guarded by a like 30,000 soldiers who all just ran away because they were so terrified of ISIS. Um, everyone knows that story. Well, this leads to them getting even more weapons, more sophisticated weapons, because, um, you know, they're picking up the, the weapons that have been dropped by um, an army that was being funded and given supplies from America. And so now they have like these very sophisticated weapons. They have updated guns, updated uh, all this stuff. They have like artillery units, tanks and, and shit like that. So they become an incredibly, incredibly uh, ferocious militia, and they then declare a caliphate. They govern a state the size of Great Britain and had taxes and a standing army. And it took three years to destroy that. The U.S. had to ally with the Shiite militias in Iraq to kick them out of Mosul in 2017. And then they had to ally with the Kurds to kick them out of Raqqa. That state... That really big, scary state where they had oil, they had resources, tax revenue, uh, just a big, huge population, that has been obliterated. Now we're just dealing with the leftovers. On the Syrian side of the border, ISIS has nothing. Um, they're trapped between the Syrian Kurds in the north, um, the uh, Iraqi Shiite forces in the east, and of course the Syrian government. And um, the way it's working right now, uh, the American troops, they're, they're kind of almost serving as a meat shield in Syria. Um, the Syrian government would just completely monopolize the rest of that territory, but, you know, they can't. Because let's just say they kill an American soldier by accident, then the U.S. is going to unleash hell on them. They're going to fire missiles and drone strikes, and they're just going to obliterate the, the units that, that did that. Um, and it will also just cause public outcry, and the neocons will have a pretext to uh, get even more involved in Syrian affairs. So they would never, ever, the Syrian government would, is always going to avoid uh, ISIS units that are close to American bases just because of the fear of ki killing an American soldier. But after the U.S. leaves, uh, whatever insurgency is left is going to be dealt with through, uh, with through police activity rather rather than all-out warfare so isis is defeated at, at least at the very least they're defeated in syria and, and you're always going to have people who say i'm isis and commit acts of terror i mean isis is an ideology anyone can pick up a rifle and say that they're isis right now i think if anywhere the conflict is going to really heat up in iraq I think the leftovers will never be accepted in Iraq, especially with the Shiite government. Like right now, a lot of the you know, ex-Wahhabi extremists are going back to their home. They're going back to Iraq. And the Shiites are just never going to accept them. And because of this, I think it's going to cause a lot of contempt in, in um, Iraqi Sunnistan. Like Western Iraq is a barren desert. It's going to be, it's impossible to govern. And right now what you're seeing is that there's a bunch of revenge killing there. 
Um, you know, they're the Shiite militias. They're taking ISIS prisoners and and tossing them off cliffs, cutting off heads. Um, anyone who's accused of being ISIS over there is just taken out and shot or thrown in jail. And this can be and ISIS. You know, can be a pretty broad term. It could just be a random, you know, rebel Sunni rebel who was fighting in Syria at with one of the more moderate groups. Like that's a real thing. But um, I, I think that the, the Shiite population in Iraq is going to use the word ISIS uh, to get rid of people that they don't like. And uh, you know, my greatest fear is that this could actually extend to the rest of the Sunni population and create an ongoing civil war in Iraq. Because that's what happens with identity politics. When you put your religious faction, when you put your religious faction or your tribe first and you're not a nationalist, this is the type of thing that happens. And people like often ask, like, you know, what's the religious, like, what's the deal with this religious rivalry? rivalry? Uh, like, what's the actual difference between a Shiite and a Sunni? So they have a theological difference on the lineage of Muhammad. And that's just like Catholics and Protestants fighting on whether or not you need a pope and a hierarchy of bishops, or in a Protestant's case, a direct relationship with God. But that's not really why they're fighting. They're fighting over the same reasons the Catholics and the Protestants used to fight. It's because of religious nepotism, meaning that all the jobs go to one group and not the others. You know, like the Catholics and the Protestants who, uh, you know, who fought over whether to keep the, you know, the money in England or, or send it to Rome. You know, the religious differences are really just secondary. You know, you identify as a Sunni and a Shiite and non-Iraqi, that's what happens. This huge secular divide happens within your country. The Ba'athist movement, like Saddam's government, was trying to have sort of a, a pan-Arabism and, and create national identity rather than a religious identity. So everyone would be Iraqi, not a Sunni or a Shiite. <clears throat> or you would be a uh, Sunni Iraqi or a Shiite Iraqi. But at the end of the day, you would all just be Iraqis. And, you know, you would never put your theological philosophy first. You know, once one group is engaged in ethnic or religious nepotism, what it does, it just forces the other side to have to band together too. So if the Shiites come to power and only hire Shiites for, for, for government jobs, and the Shiites get all the resources, then all the non-Shiite have to band together to oppose that. And it's really hard to unravel once you have this type of secular division. You know, you end up getting this cycle of revenge killings and war and, and, and conflict and it's all sorts of bad things. And, and let's say the Shiites lose power and the Sunnis take over and the Sunnis engage in the same type of behavior. Well, the cycle continues. The only way out of this is to have a secular government. But in the Middle East, it's just it's not easy. You know, like if America split up into different factions, if we had a black faction and a white faction and an Asian faction or you did it by religion. So Catholics, Jews, Protestants, they were all set up in different factions. It would be a nightmare like the, it would be horrible. Unfortunately, we used to oppose these Arab national movements in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. There was a really big Arab national movement. The problem is, is that they didn't want to be under U.S. or even really Soviet influence. So what, what we did, they basically, we, we went into a Cold War with them because we didn't want a, an, an Arab state to take over all these oil riches in the Middle East. 
And we also had a fear that, you know, they're not with us. They're not technically with the Soviet Union. I mean, they, they were kind of with the Soviet Union because they were receiving weapons from them because the U.S. refused to. However, we opposed those factions and we tried to produce religious conflict in those countries when they were trying to go into a different direction and create unity upon Arabs. And now we're left with this. Now we're left with just this secular war that could go on for the next 100 years. Who knows? And, and that's what's really going on in Iraq right now. That's why I think Iraq, I don't want to say doomed, but I think they are in for just more sectarian violence over the next five to 10 years until that country develops some type of national unity and it's not just completely sectarian, then you're going to have this shit. You're going to have this these revenge killings. Like right now, the Shiite militias are treating any, you know, the Sunni insurgents in Syria and, and, and Iraq uh, like enemies of, of the state. And, you know, maybe I'm wrong about this. I heard the new prime minister had, you know, there's some representation, Sunni representation in the Iraqi government, but I don't know. I think that we can see, um, you know, an Iraq war uh, 3.5 or, or 4 in the future. And it may not be under the guise of ISIS. Maybe ISIS is destroyed forever. But remember, ISIS is an ideology. So anyone can pick up a rifle and call themselves ISIS. And they bit, they've made a big enough trademark where I think people could do that. So if there is this big Sunni movement in Iraq, maybe they do take the name Iraq, uh, ISIS. It may not be like the caliphate where they took over parts of, you know, huge parts of land the size of the UK with the population to match. But I can see that sort of thing happening. Now, the Kurdish faction is another group that splintered off. And you have to realize a lot of Kurds in Iraq and Syria, they're actually just refugees from Turkey. Like Turkey was ethnically cleansing Kurds all through the 90s. So they poured into Syria and northern Iraq. And the Kurds also have an identitarian philosophy and, and engage in, in ethnic nepotism. You know, for example, um, you know, the Kurds treat the Assyrians in Iraq like shit. Like the Assyrians are a very small minority in Iraq. It's something like like one to five percent of the population there are Assyrians. They're mostly Christians. And they face things like discriminatory tax laws and, and things like that. The Kurds have been trying to kick them out of their territory. So it's another group. And I, and I know like people are like, well, uh, the Kurds have women in their army. Oh, oh, oh the, the Kurds are socialist Marxist or, or, or whatever. Uh, but like the Kurds engage in the same type of behavior. And you have to remember, how did the Kurds take such a large chunk of land in Syria? Well, during the war, Assad had to move his eastern forces to protect Damascus. And, uh, you know, eastern Syria is all desert. So Assad had to concentrate his eastern forces uh, west to protect the Rahams in Damascus, like, you know, the heavy populated areas in, in western Syria. Um, so, when they so when Assad's forces left, the Kurds went and claimed that area for their own. Then the U.S. goes goes ahead and, and and says we'll back the SDF like the Kurds in Syria. What ended up happening is that that pissed Turkey off because they don't want those Kurds to link up with the Kurds in Turkey because they're having problems with the PKK, which they consider a terrorist group. The PKK is the Turkish faction in in, in Turkey. 
So what, what Turkey does in response is that Turkey ends up backing this group called Ar al Sham, which was a Muslim Brotherhood group. Another radical Sunni Wahhabi cancer group that engages in the same activity that ISIS does. They're just another terrorist radical Sunni group. It's funny because uh, now that the U.S. is leaving, the Kurds are negotiating with, uh, with the Syrian government to, to hand back the land peacefully. Because if they don't, Syria will just give Turkey the green light to come in and, and basically annihilate the Kurds. And, I mean, they did that already in this place called Afrin. Um, the Kurds were up in this place called Afrin. It's uh, in northwestern Syria. And um, this gave them sea access. And when you have sea access, you, bi- you basically become a real state. Like, you can trade. You can create an economy. Um And Turkey, well, obviously, they did not want this for very obvious reasons. He didn't want a Kurdish state to link up with the PKK, which they consider a terrorist group. So uh, I'm going to start talking about Idlib, and then I'm going to wrap this up, because that's where the real war is right now in Syria, um, though there is a ceasefire. So when Assad started winning the war, when the tides of war turned, um, Assad was able to start freeing up their major population zones. So, um, you know, homes, Farah, Aleppo, which was huge, um, they were able to free all those zones and then concentrate the people, you know, the other forces for the fight. And they started winning. And what they did is they set up a retreat zone in Idlib because it's better to have someone surrender than to take casualties. So he, he pushed them all into Idlib. And what was really smart about that. And Assad is very, very smart. He's, he's a very smart guy, and that's why I don't think he used chemical weapons. I think he's way too rational. He's too much of a rational actor to, to, uh, to sabotage himself like that. Well, when he pushed them all into Idlib, all these different terrorist factions and rebel groups started fighting each other. They're like rival drug dealers fighting over who gets to extort the population. And, and right now, the groups that you need to know are... Um, Ar al-Sham, um, al-Nusra, which is uh, al-Qaeda in the Levant, and, and ISIS. And after that, there's just a bunch of minor players in, in that area. But the de facto leader right now is al-Nusra. Um, Ar al-Sham was backed by Turkey, but um, Turkey has stopped backing them. So they lost their sponsor, so they're done. Um, ISIS, there's like very small pockets of ISIS in Idlib, so they're not really a major player there either. They're basically done. So the major terrorist group in Syria right now is is al-Nusra. And guess who's actually backing al-Nusra? Israel. That's why you're seeing Israel launching airstrikes on Damascus. Like, Israel really wants... I mean, they've they've already saw the writing on the wall uh, that Syria is not going to have a regime change. But, I mean, they really wanted him gone because they wanted to take out one of Iran's allies because they are just, I don't know why they have such a big fear of Iran. I think that playing to these really radical Sunni groups are a bigger threat to Israel than Iran is. Like imagine if things turned out different and these radical Wahhabi groups, uh, you know, Syria fell and it became a caliphate or, you know, some radical state. And then after that, Lebanon fell and then from Lebanon, these extremists were able to link up with Hamas. Like, if they think Hamas is a problem, 
Imagine him linking up with professional trained fighters who are battle-hardened. So I, I don't understand. I mean, Israel was playing a dangerous game, and I think it's to their benefit that Assad stayed in power. And um, right now in Idlib, there's a ceasefire. And uh, the Turks are supposed to be, I guess, weeding out these moderate fighters who are going to surrender or fight the Kurds or, or whatever. But the U.S. isn't involved in that. That's all Assad, Putin, and Erdogan. And if Syria were to liberate Idlib, like the, the liberate the Idlib province in northwestern Syria, um, it is going to end up being very bloody. Like, you're going to be seeing a bunch of airstrikes from Russia. Um, you know, the Syrian army is not a—they don't have the ability to attack with precision. They're like a blunt hammer. So it's going to be a very, very bloody affair. And the airstrikes are happening right now on the outskirts. Um, you know, unfortunately, there's civilians dying there all the time. Um, so th they are getting ready. I mean, they have these different retreat zones that are surrounding Idlib, but, you know, that country went from like a population of 400,000 to 2 million during the war because that's all, that's all the refugees retreated over there and all the terrorists retreated over there. So I think that we're looking at a pretty bad situation um, if there's no deal in place. Uh, Assad, I think... I think he's getting anxious, and I think he does want to want to liberate that. But right now, Putin is saying no. Um, they're they're working with Erdogan, so I mean, we can only hope that place gets lit. There, there's some type of deal where those guys walk out, or they, uh, you know, they completely isolate the really radical ones in that city if there is an invasion, so it limits the the civilian casualties. But um, I think that's what you really have to pay attention to in Syria right now is is Idlib. Um, so the ceasefire is on right now, so you're not going to see much, or maybe you'll see it soon. Maybe I think it will take probably about eight months or so, or eight to twelve months or so, if you see when you, until you see a ground invasion there. But eventually, it is going to happen. Uh, now that basically the rest of Syria is going to be is going to be free uh, from these radical groups, and um, now that the uh, you know the Kurds are, are negotiating negotiating with Assad to, uh, you know, become a part of Syria again. So um, I guess that's the update with Syria, what's going on right now, the, the, what you need to, to, to know. Um, hopefully what I, I, what, I hope I, what I hope people got out of this podcast was that identity politics in whatever form are really dangerous. They're really bad. Because they create just these secular divides that create endless cycles of violence. And I think that you're going to see it. You're going to see it in Iraq for the foreseeable future. The whole reason why Syria was a target for this, you know, imported revolution or whatever you want to call it. I'm not sure everyone's opinion who's listening on Syria is. I tend to think that the war was kind of imported into country because a lot of parties wanted regime change. But just because the war was imported there doesn't mean that it wasn't a ticking time bomb already. Assad is an Alawite, which is a super minority. And what he did is that he created this huge coalition with all the other minorities. So, you know, the Christians, Yazidis, um, you know, anyone who was a minority, and they made the kind of like this uh, elite coalition of minorities and the rest of the country was pretty much all Sunni so there was that time bomb and 
what countries did is they played off that sectarian divide. Um, I mean, you can even see, I, I've heard war- stories about the Syrian army, and, and the Syrian army is pretty diverse. If, believe it or not, despite Assad being a Shiite, which is like, I guess, or they're an Alawite, which is technically a Shiite, but the Twelvers don't consider them Shiites. Um, Alawites are kind of like Christians. Like they celebrate Christmas and they're very, very Western. And they, you know, they, Jesus is really big in their, in their, uh, version of Islam. Um, they're like crypto. I think they became Christians at a time when, you know, if you, or they became Muslims at a time where if you didn't convert, then your head would be chopped off. I think that's why, what the Alawites are. Um, sorry if I'm offending anyone right here. And I'm also losing my fucking point right now, big time. But yeah, sectarian divide is really bad. Um, that's why it's better to have a secular society. And uh, let's just hope for the best for any of the civilians out there who uh, who are really struggling. And, uh, you know, the war is not over yet. Let's, uh, let's hope for a good ending. And uh, later this week, we will be covering Afghanistan uh, because there's been a lot of updates there as well. So uh, thanks again for joining Bro History. Uh, remember to rate and review the podcast if you enjoyed this. Um, really sorry if Danny Danny couldn't be here today. I obviously prefer doing the podcast with Danny because you know Danny can kind of check me or push back on things that I say. Um, sometimes when I'm alone on these podcasts, they make pretty hard claims, and, and it's nice to get some pushback so I can further explain my ideas. Uh, but sometimes you're just going to have me. And that's how you keep the show going. And I think we're doing a new schedule uh, as well. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday is what I'm aiming for. So a new episode, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So subscribe, all that stuff. I love you all. Have a wonderful rest of your week. And I will talk to you again on Friday. Peace. Peace.